The centrepiece of the National Archives 2023 commemoration programme is an international exhibition to mark the centenary of Ireland joining the League of Nations. Drawing from records held in the National Archives, the exhibition will explore the early ambitions of the new Irish state as it asserted its independence on the global stage. The exhibition will introduce the Irish delegation who travelled to Geneva in 1923 to secure Ireland's membership and it will explore Ireland's role at the League of Nations during the 1920s and 1930s. Working in partnership with the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Royal Irish Academy, the exhibition will begin its tour this month. To learn more about the Irish Free State's role in the League of Nations, I'm joined by two of the exhibition's curators, Dr Michael Kennedy, Executive Editor of the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy with the Royal Irish Academy, and Zoe Reid, Keeper of Public Services and Collections with the National Archives. You're both very, very welcome indeed. Michael, remind us, first of all, what was the League of Nations? How did it come about? The League of Nations was a great experiment in international organisation that came about as a result of the destruction of the First World War. It was one of uh, President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points that the post-war order would be, in the international terms, organised by a League of Nations that would bring together all of the uh, the countries of the world, the, the free countries of the world, to Geneva, where the League was to be based, and they would try and organise the international system. And the, the big hope for the League of Nations was that it would be part of the ending of war as an international instrument. The League would promote the peaceful settlement of international disputes. It would particularly promote disarmament and it would promote uh, social activities amongst nations. That's not, I don't mean parties or that sort of thing. I mean social events and uh, social understanding, social intercourse, if you like, in areas that uh, hitherto hadn't been part of an organised international system, like the International Labour Organisation, the organisation of such mundane sounding things as road signs and that you know, across uh, international borders. But the main thing the League was to do was to try and prevent war breaking out again, that there would never be a First World War type scenario. And we know this was all in vain. But in the, the 1920s, the hope was that the League would use its moral clout, the clout of the international order, to prevent wars breaking out. And if wars did break out, then members, uh, those members who transgressed the covenant of the League would have sanctions implemented upon them, either economic sanctions or, in very limited cases, military sanctions. Got off to a bad start. As you say, it was the brainchild of Woodrow Wilson. He was out of office, I suppose, when, the, uh, when, it, when it came to the crunch. And the crunch was the US Senate essentially voting down the Versailles Treaty. Yeah, That's the, the end of it, as far the, as they're concerned. As far as America is concerned, yeah. they're in its isolationism... Uh, America does not get involved in the you know the old world uh, in the in the 1920s as the Americans see it, and so the the league is basically an Anglo-French construction, and it's basically a European Latin American construction with a little bit of involvement of the few states of Africa and uh, you know Southeast Asia who are independent. Japan is a member, China uh, is a member, the Soviet Union becomes a member in 1934. But it's not like the UN today that is universal because at the time there were so many states were still colonised, were still part of the imperial system of the powers of the, the First World War era. The League played its part in that as uh, it had a system of mandates that would try and bring some of the uh, the colonies, uh, particularly uh, German, ex-German colonies, ex-Turkish colonies, bring them forward to statehood. But primarily, uh, the League we're looking at uh, today is a, uh, a League that runs around an Anglo-French axis and is based in Geneva. And obviously, Ireland had not had access to the Versailles negotiations 
Nations in 1919 and the formulation of the of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, this, therefore, was something that would have been very attractive to the to the free state government, although their right to participate was at the very least a grey area. That's true. That the, One of the primary aims of the, the Doyle Aaron and the, the Declaration of Independence, the message to the free nations of the world of January 1919, was that Ireland would become a member of the League of Nations. Now, initially, there was some kind of d- distaste about that or uncertainty as to whether Ireland should become a member. Was it a League of Imperialist States? And, you know, the, the particularly after America rejected the League, there were issues there with the support from Irish America or not. But primarily for the the free state as it comes into being in 1922, League of Nations membership is a primary goal of Irish foreign policy. Ireland wants to be represented at Geneva. It's a question of how do you do this? Because the provisional government that uh, took office through 1922 didn't have any international capacity. It was just looking after domestic policy. The Doyle Aaron government set up in 1919 wasn't recognised internationally. So it was only when the Irish Free State came into being in December 1922 that Ireland could finally make the move towards joining the League. And then there were other issues from the League side that that, uh, that were problematic, uh, particularly that the Civil War was ongoing. The Free State had a, a large standing army at that stage, and this was seen to potentially transgress the League's covenant in that it uh, wasn't, uh, it didn't find favour with Article 8 of the covenant, which dealt with disarmament. So it looked like Ireland, for, for probably the only time in its history, was too militarised. So there were, there were issues like that to overcome the, 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 the state actually being in being, the size of the defence forces. There were also issues over whether the Oireachtas should or could become involved in promoting membership. But uh, finally, on the, the 4th of April, 1923, Ireland applied for membership of the, the League of Nations. Zoe, the, the Free State joins the League on the 10th of September, 1923. Obviously, it's a pivotal moment. The exhibition explores the individuals who made that happen, from politicians like W.T. Cosgrave, who was the president of the Executive Council, or, or Taoiseach, we'd now call him, to diplomats like Michael McQuaish. Just Talk to me a little bit about the involvement of those two individuals in this process. Well, I think Michael McWhite as the first envoy is hugely important in this whole process. And he was the gentleman who was really quick off the mark to see the value of it. As Michael's research has shown, I mean, McWhite was multilingual. He had been part of the French Foreign Legion and he was a gentleman who was pushing constantly to make sure that the Anglo-Irish Treaty became an international treaty. And that was really important. And I think the important thing to remember about bringing an exhibition like this to life is that we're taking the documents and the documents that tell us something and we're turning something concrete into something that people can connect with and and can see. So things like seeing the letter from McWhite that says, I have lodged the Anglo-Irish Treaty into the, the international treaty framework to get it ratified. And that was as early as August and then it was sanctioned in the September. And was there no pushback from GB at all at this stage, no? Well, I'll the, let Michael answer that, because <laughs> <laughs> there was. <laughs> there certainly is. I mean, the British are kind of caught on this and that Ireland becomes a, a dominion under the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Dominions have international sovereignty, but how much sovereignty they have is is questionable. The Foreign Office say, well, none at all. Anything that the Dominions do internationally is done as part of the Commonwealth, whereas the Colonial Office, which becomes the Dominions Office, say, well, actually, no, the Dominions do have an international uh, international sovereignty and international profile in, in their own right. So there's pushback in London, but 
there's uncertainty in London and, and that's I think something that League of Nations membership is very useful for for the free state in that it allows it to project an international image to show like Zoe said about the, registering the treaty at the, at the League of Nations to prove that dominion status can be the way to get international sovereignty it's Collins' stepping stone argument and the the, um, the British really don't have a leg to stand on because the, once the League Secretariat except one that Ireland is able to be a member of the League there's never any problem about that and then uh, shortly afterwards that the, the treaty can be registered as an international document because the League wants itself to succeed you know the League is only a new organisation really in 1924 so there's very little that Britain can do it can bluster it can protest it can try and develop, you know, counter precedents to what the Irish do at Geneva. And McQuaid, who we were talking about there, is a is a brilliant operator from that point of view. He's a, he's very skilled as a diplomat, although he's he has no diplomatic training. He's just innately capable of working the international system, of working the, the working the room in Geneva, basically, and getting Ireland's message across. So Britain is kind of caught on the hop, if you like, unable to respond to the very able diplomacy and the very able propaganda that McWhite and his colleagues uh, undertake in Geneva to promote the free state as an independent state. And Zoe, despite any British ambiguity, the welcome from the other members of the you know, of the League of Nations seems to have been quite fulsome. It was. I mean, there's some great quotes from the exhibition as well. There's one from Desmond Fitzgerald, um, where he's basically talking about greeting all the different nations of the world. He was Um, the Minister for External Affairs, as it was called. He was at that stage. And so he was part of the diplomatic corps that went over, that the Executive Council sent over to Geneva. And he talks about, you know, shaking hands with people like their long lost brothers and then finding out who they are. And so you get that great sense of the people, as Michael said, working the room, working really hard to do what we see Ireland very successfully does today on an international platform. And the League is that first opportunity for Irish people to really show the role that they can have in an international stage. And I think that's why it's critical and it's important. And it's really important for us to actually look back and reflect on this now to see where we are now in terms of the UN and our international state. Um, Michael, for the first few years, it was a case of, it seems to have been the case of we're in, now let's take 40 winks. That's a bit bit extreme, but yeah, you're, you're right, basically, that, that there's that the whole the build-up to becoming a member of the League, what Zoe was describing there, and then the, the Fourth Assembly, Ireland is admitted, there's a massive applause, and then afterwards, well, what do we do now? And the some sense of, well, can we bring the Boundary Commission to the League of Nations? There's the registration of the treaty that we, we talked about. But you know, we've used the League to make the point that we're independent. Okay, now we're in. Well, what happens next? So there, there is a bit of a fallow period until 1926. And Fitzgerald, as, as Minister for External Affairs, has, has a lot on his plate. You know, the, the Ireland's diplomatic service is really only established in, in 1922. So it's a very small, young department that Fitzgerald is heading. And the League is one of a number of areas that the Department of External Affairs have to go at full speed on from the word go. And in 1926, there's a sense, well, where now? And it's a chance event that leads to a total reboot of League policy. Uh, Germany is admitted to the League at a special assembly in, in the spring of 1926. And as a result of that, there's a, an upset over membership of the League's council. It's equivalent to the Security Council. And it's going to be expanded to allow Germany to get in. Other states are going to get in. They're going to have to be elected. And the League basically, with the great powers of the time, sets up an election to make sure that certain states get in and certain states don't. 
Fitzgerald is heading the Irish delegation to the, the league and the Irish delegation say, well, hang on, this isn't right. Uh, the Assembly is meant to have a say in this. The powers just can't fix an election. Why don't we stand for election? Let's upset the apple cart and we'll, <laughs> we'll go for election ourselves. So that, that's what happens in September 1926. Ireland puts its name forward for a temporary seat on the League Council. Now, we don't get elected, but we make a fuss. We make a bit of a hullabaloo and we get listened to. We get votes from the other small states in the Assembly. And the delegation, when it comes back to Dublin, says, well, hang on, maybe we ought to put a bit more effort into policy. And really central in this is not Fitzgerald, the Minister for External Affairs, but Ernest Blythe, the Minister for Finance. That I find incredibly surprising. It is really fascinating. (laughs) And, you know, uh, Fitzgerald goes back and he he writes to his wife, Mabel, at least Ernest will see now this is not a holiday for me, this trip to Geneva. And Fitzgerald (laughs) hated the League Assembly because, like Zoe's comment there about shaking hands with people like their long lost friends, but not knowing who the hell they are. You know, he he hated the dining at Geneva. Uh, He had a, a, a delicate composition and he didn't particularly like all the big dinners he had to go to. Now, he, this is Garrett Fitzgerald's father you're Garrett's talking father, about, by the way, in case father, anybody's yeah. not sure. Yeah, now, he's, yeah. he's a wonderful minister to the extent that he's really tuned into the international environment of the 20s, particularly in Europe, former journalist, lots of connections in the literary world and that. So he's the kind of man you want as minister. But he's, he's eased out of the external affairs portfolio into defence in 1927. And foreign affairs or external affairs... Kevin O'Higgins is there, summer of 1927, he's assassinated. Then in the autumn of 1927, Patrick McGilligan takes over as minister. And it's McGilligan and Blythe who really get league policy going in the late 20s. And the, the move at this stage is that Ireland has moved from seeing the league in terms of what can the league do for Ireland, sovereignty, international acceptance and so on, to what Ireland can do for the league. And Ireland can be a small state supporter of the League in its assembly, trying to keep the great powers in order. And that becomes Ireland's modus operandi in the League for the remainder of of its membership. And there must have been a lot of good work done between 1926 and 1930 because the Free State is voted onto the League's Council in 1930. Yep. Ireland takes a very active role in the Assembly. It signs League conventions. It gets involved in the work of the League. And McWhite is is still permanent representative at Geneva, permanent delegate to the League at Geneva. And he is still showing that Ireland has an interest in the League. And the Department of External Affairs is very small in 1929-1930 when the state goes up for election. And its offices in Berlin, in Paris, the Vatican, London put on a, a canvas, uh, you know, canvas the states who are members of the League, the 60 or so states, looking for votes for Ireland. And then it's it's kind of touch and go in September 1930. Portugal puts its name in at the last minute. Ireland isn't sure if it's going to be elected. But finally, September 1930, the vote is taken in the Assembly and Ireland secures a three-year temporary seat at the League's top table on its council, dealing with the main international events of the of, of that period. And if you think the early 1930s, it's a hugely important time with the, you know, the aftermath of the Wall Street crash, the rise of, of uh, Nazism in Germany, Japan invades the Chinese province of Manchuria in the Far East, there's uh, wars in Latin America, you know, the, the, the League, it's really a turning point in international history and a turning point in the League where the activism and the hopes of the 1920s begin to give way to the the despair and ultimately the slide to war of the 1930s. I suppose those years, 30 to 35, Ireland is at the height of its influence in the League of Nations. And that brings one Eamon de Valera, 
to international prominence. De Valera is very lucky with the League of Nations that uh, he comes to power in 1932. Uh, he takes the external affairs portfolio as well as being president of the Executive Council and he wants Irish foreign policy to succeed. F- foreign policy is the ultimate form of sovereignty to him that if you have an independent foreign policy, you are an independent state. And so he goes to Geneva in September 1932 not only as Irish delegate to the League, to the head of the delegation to the Assembly, but also president of the Council of the League. He holds the rotating presidency. He's responsible for opening the 1932 Assembly as well. So he really is catapulted onto the international stage at Geneva. And because of the the tension in Anglo-Irish relations at the time, there's this sort of sense, this international frisson of what is de Valera going to do? Uh, Is he going to announce some major initiative in Anglo-Irish affairs? Is he going to bash the Brits from the rostrum at Geneva, but he doesn't do any of that. He's the statesman. He calls the League to order. He makes a speech that goes down in the history of the League as kind of um, telling the League, you're about to be on your last chance, lads, because if you don't shape up, the world is going to pass you by. And look at the way the international system is changing. And he's constantly calling out the League through the 1930s, using the power that he has at Geneva to tell the great powers Uh, The League is failing. The League is beginning to fail. The League needs to kind of catch itself on to realise that the covenant is being bypassed by states like uh, like Japan, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, who simply want to run roughshod over the international order that is being established at Geneva. So he's quite a well-known figure at Geneva, he's a, it's a very different De Valera to what we see in Ireland. He's a, he's a cosmopolitan figure. He's you know sitting at uh, you know sidewalk cafes in Geneva, sipping coffee. It's not the the austere, uh, tall, austere gentleman and cloaks Make around him sound by like nuns. James Joyce. Almost. But that, there's a, there's an element of that to it that we don't take <laughs> into the domestic view of De Valera. De Valera, the statesman, mm. is very different internationally to yeah. De Valera, the the um, the Irish politician on the stump. Uh, so another Irish name associated with the League of Nations is Sean Lester. Tell me about him. Who was he? Sean Lester was a gentleman from Carrickfergus in County Antrim and he was a journalist by trade but he then became a very important figure in terms of both the League on a couple of different occasions. So he was there. He took over as being the permanent rep after Michael McWhite in 29. He got the High Commissioner posting to Danzig in 35, 1935 and went with his family to Danzig which we now know as contemporary Gdansk in Poland. He was there until 1937 That's when he saw things very much change in Poland in terms of the rise of Nazism. He then comes back to the League for a period of time and then he ends up being the Secretary General of the League towards the end of the League's life as well. So he's hugely important in terms of Ireland and its role with the League of Nations. And I think that, again, there's some great quotes from himself writing back to his wife Elsie about um, the role and about the fact of the diplomatic spouses. He was a gentleman, as I've said, he was there with his wife, but they had three daughters as well. They didn't have a high salary, and that's one thing that has come out, the diplomatic spouses and the role that they played. They had to dress well, they had to entertain, and they had to do it all on quite a small budget. And you say as well, Michael, that in some of Lester's diaries, you know, he's there with barbed comments about the lack of money and the lack of funding to entertain diplomats, which is not what we think about when we think about people going abroad and representing Ireland and that League thing. And again, I think what we've managed to do with some of the documents in the exhibition is to bring those 
the human element out and the bits to life. So there's a great example we have of the delegation going over for 1931 and we have a plan of the hotel and it's their their request for the rooms that they're going to have and we have a small map of the of the hotel, the first floor, and all the different rooms are marked out to say which step, who's staying where. And it's again, <laughs> those are the things that make it tangible. You know, we can say, yes, we sent over a diplomatic corps and they went and represented us. When you see they had to plan it, the same way we have to plan our holidays, they had to think about hotel rooms. That's what gets you really engaged with the documents. And who's going to get the plushest room, obviously? <laughs> and sharing the bathroom. Yeah, they're sharing bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. you know, this, right. is, this is done on a shoestring budget mm. as well. You know, it's not, it's back to the, the Desmond Fitzgerald quote of this isn't a holiday for me. You know, this is a this is a real working trip. And uh, it's, uh, you're seeing, you know, uh, Mr. Lester is in this room and he's sharing a bathroom with Dr. Binchy and then De Valera gets the suite, you know, because he needs to have a, a salon to to have meetings in and entertain. What did Sean McEntee think of that? I don't think he'd be very happy at all with that. No, <laughs> no, more, than Blythe, from no more than Blythe was, uh, <laughs> w- w- was happy in the 20s. Um, talk to me then, uh, Michael, about the decline of the League of Nations. I assume that really is accelerated with the Italian invasion of Abyssinia as it was then, Ethiopia as it is now. Yeah, 1934-35 sees that really the, the, the League, well not getting its last rights, but its, uh, its attempt to impose economic sanctions on Italy uh, does nothing to thwart uh, Italy's annexation uh, of, of Abyssinia, Ethiopia. And the, the move away from Geneva was very clear from the, the early 1930s. It's, uh, it's global disarmament conference fails and Nazi Germany leaves the League. Uh, Japan leaves the League over uh, the, you know, the, the League's response to its invasion of Manchuria. And the sanctions articles in the Covenant, which weren't meant to be the League's teeth, just really they fall out, you know, that they're seen to be um, utterly um, incapable of, of proper, proper working, really. The League does not work. Uh, from the mid-1930s on. And what Zoe was saying there about Leicester in, in uh, Danzig is, is so important that he's the the man who, if Europe had listened, uh, gave one of the first warnings about the Nazis and, and Nazi race, racial policies and what the thuggery of Nazism was, was all about. Um, but Geneva begins to be bypassed. The great powers, particularly after the annexation of Abyssinia, are returning to rearming those War is on the horizon. The League has very little to do with, you know, the the, the awful events that lead to uh, the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, in September 1939. It's not involved in, in the Munich crisis, for example. Dev is president of the Assembly at that stage. He's pretty much on the sidelines. But where the League does, and this is something that historians have kind of rediscovered in, in the last 20 years or so, where the League does really have successes is in its social activities, back to the looking after the, the people of the planet, the, the welfare of women and children, trying to stop the, the white slave trade, you know, prostitution, uh, international issues that we, we deal with today, refugees, terrorism, uh, international health. All of those areas that we take for granted as part of the UN system have their origins in the League of Nations and in late Victorian attempts at, at organising the world that the League takes on board. And these these are the, the League's successes from the late 1930s and into the Second World War. And it's those areas that Leicester safeguards, as is always describing a Secretary General of the League, uh, through the Second World War. But as a political organisation, it has completely failed uh, by the time Leicester returns from uh, Danzig and becomes comes Deputy Secretary General of the League in, in 1937. Zoe, you and Michael and your co 
curator, Dr. John Gibney, are going to be very busy for the next few months. Give us uh, a couple of dates and locations, perhaps, for the exhibition. I think you're starting, you're making your debut at the Ploughing Championship. We are. We're taking it to the Ploughing Championships, um, which is fantastic. So you'll be able to see the exhibition there. And then it'll be opening in the United Nations office in Geneva. Uh, for two weeks, mid to the end of September. And then we'll be taking part in the Dublin Festival of History this year. And then it'll go back to United Nations, but in New York, in the headquarters in the UN in New York in November to early December. So it's having quite a life and quite a tour. Very definitely. And uh, getting around, that's for sure. Michael Kennedy and Zoe Reid, thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about Ireland and the League of Nations as explored in a forthcoming exhibition that, as I said, begins its international tour at the Ploughing Championships on the 19th of this month.